Chapter 4 of A Book of English Martyrs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Evans, Minneapolis, Minnesota. A Book of English Martyrs by E. M. Wilmot Buxton. Chapter 4 Papists and Heretics. Eighteen years had passed away since the fall of Cromwell in 1540 had to some extent stayed the persecuting hand of Henry VIII. Seven years later the king himself had gone to meet his terrible account, leaving in charge of his young son Edward a land torn asunder by the extraordinary upheaval of the past twenty years. It is indeed almost impossible to realize the effect of the shock to England of the changes brought about by the so-called Reformation. The monasteries alone had formed such an important part of ordinary social life as the schools, the libraries, the hospitals, the almoners, and indeed the whole charity organization of the time, that the suppression of more than 600 of these religious houses was bound to disorganize the country. Thousands of monks, lay brothers, and nuns had been turned out, often without any friends or means of support, and left to starve by the wayside. Many of these monks were men of learning, with all the taste of a student and no knowledge of practical affairs, and these found themselves at the mercy of a brutal mob or a jeering crowd as they passed in their worn habits through the public streets. When this became the ordinary fate of men whose holy office had hitherto caused for them respect and reverence, the effect upon the more ignorant part of the population can be easily understood. When the ordinary restraints of religion are destroyed, license and disorder became a natural result, and accounts for much of the extraordinary violence shown in the reign of Henry the Sixth, when the persecution of abbots and monks was exchanged for a furious attack upon the churches and the chantries of the land. So we find the beautiful old buildings, raised by the generosity of benefactors and the loving hands of monastic workmen, despoiled. The statue of Our Lady smashed with ribald glee, the holy rood, from which the image of the Saviour stretched, imploring hands, defaced by his rebellious children. The stained windows splintered by stones, the painted walls long bright with pictures of the saints covered with coats of whitewash. When England had fallen so far from grace, she might well wish to hide or destroy all those tender reminders of her former position as the Isle of Saints. Then in the July of the year 1553, the boy king, who had been simply the tool of one ambitious nobleman after another, died, and his sister Mary, after years of disgrace and peril, was hailed as Queen of England by a joyful crowd of Londoners. Was it but the fickleness of the changeable mob, or were men beginning already to weary of the stone that had been given them in place of bread? It certainly seemed as though the greater part of England would have been unfeignedly glad to return to the old paths of the Catholic faith, had it not been for that ill-fated marriage with the prince of the hated Spanish race. As it was, Mary's people could but look on in distaste and wonder at her union with the man who neglected and forsook her, and later at the persecutions for heresy at the hands of one who, at her accession, had urged her subjects to live together in quiet sort in Christian charity without use of the new-found devilish terms of papist and heretic. 
It must, however, in fairness be remembered that the so-called martyrs who suffered under Mary died not for their fidelity to the faith or of the English church, but for their holding of opinions which had brought down a similar penalty in the latter days of the reforming Henry the Eighth, and that these very reformers themselves had never hesitated to send such heretics as Anabaptists to the stake. But that we will not attempt to justify either one side or the other need scarcely be said. One class of Englishmen, however, much they disapproved of the fires at Smithfield, must have felt unmixed relief at the prospect of a return to the old ways of Catholicism. The landed gentry of the countryside had never ceased to regret the changes that had occurred in the past twenty years. They had not wavered in their faith, but all that had been to them of aid and consolation in their often lonely lives had been swept away. In place of the genial parish priest, they found some undergroom or unlearned curate jeered at by the country lads as lack Latins who slubbered up their services, or worse still, read a service that sounded strange and irreverent to the ears attuned to the fine cadences of the Roman Missal. No longer could they send their boys and girls to the neighboring abbey school or convent for the beautiful old cloisters where the children had stood to sing their prick song now stood roofless and desolate in the dark chimney corner during the long dull winter evenings while the christmas logs were sending up their lazy smoke as his children gathered round him and stared at the fire many an old squire still but a little past his prime would tell of this or that prior or monk who used to drop in in the old days and bring some relief to the monotony of their isolated lives he would not seldom mutter his curse upon the ribald recklessness of the parvenus who had ousted their betters and made the grand old places desolate sometimes too he would sigh for a priest of the old school into whose practised ear he might pour out his soul to seek remission of sins that pressed sorely upon his hardened conscience. How bitterly he would mourn for the good old times, and denounce the wild havoc that had been wrought. Generous lads heard the laments and brooded over them. They got to believe that their parents' lives had been saddened, and their own estate seriously damaged by that which they had been taught from childhood to regard as sacrilege, and the rising generation were in the mood to hope for little in the future, and to regret very much in the past. To such as these the reconciliation of England to the Holy See came as an unmixed joy. It was too late to restore the abbey lands that by this time had changed hands more than once, but hopes were high that the return of monks and priors and priests of the old order would again revive. Just when this seemed most possible, Queen Mary died, and out of the tumult of disappointed hopes and irritated feelings that lay on the surface, and the deep devotion to the Catholic Church of their fathers that surged beneath, arose that spirit of enthusiasm and faith that was to produce a noble army of martyrs during the reign of Elizabeth. The hearts of those who cared so deeply about these things might well have grown heavy when they heard that at the opening of Elizabeth's first parliament, which contained but ten who were loyal to the Catholic faith, no mass of the Holy Ghost was sung at Westminster, and that when the abbot received the queen at the entrance to the abbey with the usual procession of monks bearing lighted candles, she had cried, away with these lights we see very well she had listened moreover on that occasion to the sermon of a heretic priest who had said many things against the christian religion it was no wonder that the more ignorant folk taking their cue from such happenings began a campaign of sacrilege and blasphemy which drove the only abbot who still survived in the house of lords to make a hot protest 
My good lords, when in Queen's Mary's days you know how the people of this realm did live in an order, there was no spoiling of churches, pulling down of altars, and most blasphemous treading down of the sacrament under their feet. The subjects of this realm knew the way unto churches and chapels, there to begin their daily work with calling for help and grace by humble prayer. But now, since the coming of our most sovereign and dear lady, Queen Elizabeth, all things are now changed and turned upside down. Obedience is gone, humility and meekness clean abolished, and virtuous, chaste, and straight living abandoned. Yet when the act of supremacy, which made the queen to be supreme in all causes, both ecclesiastical and civil, was passed, only one member of the commons spoke out boldly against it, and that was Dr. John Storey, late chancellor to the Bishop of London, one of those who had taken part in the trial of Archbishop Cranmer in Mary's reign, and had helped, though without undue severity, to suppress the heretics who had tried to set up a new religion during those years. For his outspoken condemnation of the changes proposed by this act, and that of uniformity, which imposed a penalty on those who refused to attend the reformed services, Story was summoned before the council, when he defied his accusers to prove that he had said anything at which offense could reasonably be taken, adding, Should Her Majesty will otherwise, I do not refuse to die for the church. The words were prophetic of his end, but in those days he was more eager to live for his faith than to lay down his life. He had done nothing so far for which he could be condemned, but on openly taking the side of a Catholic bishop who was about to be deprived of his lands, Story found himself in peril at the hands of his many enemies on the council, and so fled to the West Country in disguise. As soon, however, as it was realized that a sure way of winning favor with the queen was to attack those who clung to the Catholic faith, her servants were on the lookout for all suspects, and one of them, a fellow called Aylworth, recognized Dr. Story, dressed in a frieze coat like a serving man and riding before the mail. Accused of having obstinately refused attendance or public worship, and everywhere declaiming and railing against that religion which we now profess, he was thrown into the fleet prison, a miserable place, where the prisoners had to pay an exorbitant sum for the necessaries of life. From here, being a man of much spirit and resource, he seems to have made his escape. We find him retaken some two years later, again in the West Country, this time disguised as a courier. He was now thrown into the Marshalsea prison, while his enemies hurried through Parliament a new act which required the oath of supremacy to be taken, on pain of death, by anyone who had held office during the last three reigns. Life is sweet to all of us, and John Story had a wife and children whom he tenderly loved. Faced with the grim alternative of acting against his conscience or being hanged, he determined to avoid both by escaping from the country. A Flemish gentleman confined in the same prison for debt gave him information of how to get across the channel to Belgium and helped him to escape from his cell into a garden. This led down to the river, and having scaled a wall, Story took a boat and went to the house of the Spanish ambassador, from whose chaplain he hoped to get assistance. The chaplain was out, however, and Story had to wait for an anxious hour or two until his return, when he begged him to help him to escape. Afraid of compromising his master with the queen, the chaplain refused, and poor Story went out into the cold midnight to do what he could alone. For a time he lay hid in the houses of his friends, but at length he managed to get a passage across to Belgium and settled down at Louvain, where his family soon joined him. From that time Story became a changed man. His old spirit and enterprise forsook him, 
and he seemed crushed under the mysterious burden of woe. His wife thought it was on account of the utter poverty to which he saw her and his children reduced, but at length he confided to her that he suffered bitterly from the remembrance that he had thrown away the crown of martyrdom when it was placed within his grasp. She, seeing his evident eagerness to return and give himself up, persuaded him to take advice upon the matter, and he was assured that since he had been delivered by the will of God, he must not count upon divine grace if he placed himself in danger when God had set him free. Still, however, he could not quiet his conscience. He tried to get his wife to enter the religious life that he might be free to become a monk of the charter house at Louvain, and so expiate his failing by a life of penance. And when she would not agree, he compromised by spending more time at prayer with the Carthusians than at home with his family. But even this solace was denied him, for his household, now increased by the family of a nephew and niece and a married daughter with her children, whom the penal laws had driven out of England, had to be maintained. These seven years of poverty, anxiety, and exile were but steps on the ladder of martyrdom. He was known in England to be in close communication with the Duke of Alva, and that through the letter he had received some help and money from the King of Spain. This was magnified into treason, and a plot was laid to entrap him. It had been lately arranged by the King of Spain and the Duke of Alva that all English ships coming and going from the port of Antwerp should be searched for heretical books or other forbidden merchandise. Hearing this, the English council bribed one William Parker, brother of the new Archbishop of Canterbury, under the pretense of being a convert to Catholicism and a fugitive from his own country, to obtain the post of searcher from Alva. This was readily granted, for the Duke was naturally much interested in the case of a convert so nearly related to the chief spiritual heretic in England and Parker at once offered the post of assistant to Dr. Storey, who was still living in great poverty in Louvain and quite unable to find work. Storey seems to have utterly disliked the office, which was quite unworthy of a man of his position, but he would not refuse because of his family. He was by this time a naturalized Spanish subject, and as such there was no reason whatever for refusing to take office under the Spanish king, any more than there is reason to believe that at any time he took part in a plot to rid England of a Protestant queen by the aid of the King of Spain. Thus he walked innocently enough into the net so carefully spread for him. Certain agents of Cecil, Elizabeth's prime minister, otherwise spies, arranged that a ship should enter the port of Antwerp, and that Parker and Dr. Storey should search it as usual. Three merchants were bribed to carry this out, and the ship having touched at Bergen op Zoom, the two went on board and below hatches to search the cargo. At once the hatches were shut down, and the ship set full sail for Yarmouth, where Dr. Storey was landed on an August evening of the year 1570. He was now an old man of sixty-six, much tried by poverty and disease, and he writes a pathetic letter to Cecil on his arrival, begging that if he be thrown into his old prison, he may be made to wear heavy irons on that of my legs, which is only able to bear the same. He also pleads that Cecil will hear his side of the matter, and not only that of his agents. There was great rejoicing in London at the old man's apprehension. The Lollard's Tower, in which he shut up the heretics whom the ancient laws then punished, was to be new-locked and bolted to shut him up, for fear lest in a common prison he should find too many friends. And while with great ingenuity 
His jailer, the Archdeacon of London, was appointing two of my neighbors, being honest men and favorable of the truth, to be his keepers jointly, and have divided the keys of the prison between them, so that the one cannot come to him without the other. He also reports that his prisoner seemeth to take little thought for any matters. He might well not grieve at the straightness of his prison, for the day of his real deliverance was now assured, though it was to be won through a bitter draining of the cup of suffering. In the December of that year, 1570, the King of Spain received this ominous letter. Dr. Story has been lodged in the tower and confronted with the man who brought him. He is accused of having plotted with the Duke of Alva. They are putting him to the torture today, and I expect it will go hardly with him. God help him. All the Catholics pray for him. The difficulty, of course, was to find any good cause of condemnation, and finding themselves hard put to it, a new charge was concocted by the council of having had intercourse with a traitor at Antwerp in the person of one of the Nortons, the family who had led the ill-fated Northern Rising in the end of the year 1569, and who had fled to Belgium for their lives. In the indictment against Story, we find it stated that he came one day to Parker's house at Antwerp, where, sitting at, din at dinner, the elder Norton and some other of his company came in from the church, and one said, This is Norton, and thereupon Story rose, and gave him place, and bid him welcome. And so the elder Norton sat down in Story's place. On this frivolous charge, therefore, was John Story brought to Westminster Hall in the May of 1571. He was weak with long imprisonment, and his body torn with the frequent torture that had been used to wring some incriminating admission from him. But when he found himself before magistrates appointed by an excommunicated queen, he refused to plead, saying that he was not an English subject, that men were not born slaves but free men, and that he was a naturalized Spaniard, the subject of the most Catholic and mighty prince, the King of Spain. In his courage and despair, he called upon any friends who might be present to give notice to that prince. How cruelly they dealt with him, though he must have known that Philip was but a broken reed upon which to lean. The Spanish ambassador, indeed, after his condemnation, did demand that Story should be sent back to Flanders, upon which Elizabeth insolently replied that the king of Spain might have his head, but that she meant to keep his body. So William Story, alone and friendless, though still undaunted in spirit, was condemned to be hung, drawn and quartered, and was taken to the tower through a yelling crowd, who shrieked blasphemous outrages all the way, to all of which he answered never a word. But his brave speech and bearing had not been unmarked by one who stood by and watched the progress of his trial. A young man of brilliant intellect and great promise, who had been led by hopes of high ferment to linger a while in the paths of heresy, had lately become more and more uneasy as to his position. He had by this time openly professed the Catholic faith, but from any further step he held back until he was present at the unjust trial of Blessed William Story. That decided him. He was animated to offer himself by this blessed man's example to any danger or peril for the same faith for which the doctor died. So the man who was to be known as Blessed Edmund Campion set forth at once for Douay, there to become a Jesuit priest and one of the noblest of our martyrs. Just before his death, Story wrote his wife a letter in which he thanks God that he was thought worthy to die in so good a cause 
and thinks that his wife and all his friends would be right glad if they knew with what eagerness he prepared himself for that death by which in so short a time he would expiate the faults of a life of nearly seventy years. He was helped in this preparation by his old friend Feckenham, abbot of Westminster, himself a prisoner in the tower, who was allowed to spend that last night with him. On the morning of the 1st of June, the martyr was, was drawn on the hurdle from the tower to Tyburn. Even on that terrible journey, men ceased not to revile him and to call on him to repent, but he lay as though he had been asleep and would not speak to any person. When, however, he was set up on the cart under the gallows, he made a beautiful speech full of resignation and spiritual joy. He confessed that for a time he had been sorely afraid of death, but that had now passed from him. He briefly recounted the story of his arrest and trial and declared that he was innocent of any plot against the queen. He referred to the charge of cruelty in the previous reign, which the mob had so persistently brought against him, and reminded them that while he was bound by his office to carry out the sentence of the bishop for heresy, both he and Bonner had done their best to be merciful, on one occasion indeed saving twenty-eight heretics from burning, on the plea that they knew not what they did. Wherefore I pray you, name me not cruel. I would be loath to have any such slander to run on me, but sith I die in charity. I pray you all of charity to pray for me, that God may strengthen me with patience to suffer my death, to the which I yield most willingly. In the midst of a declaration that he died in the ship of Christ, of which the apostle Peter is the guide, they began to question him anew, and receiving nothing of satisfaction from him, cried, Away with the cart! And so he was hanged. He was cut down immediately and cruelly butchered while still in the possession of his senses, and so, through much tribulation, obtained the martyr's crown. On the walls of his prison in the Beauchamp Tower, that almost sacred spot hallowed with the memories of so many of our martyrs, you may still see the inscription cut by his own hand. 1570. John Story, Doctor. End of chapter 4.